Good evening. It's amazing to see you all here. Um, just a little bit about the structure. Mark and I are going to kind of volley back and forth with different chunks of time. And um, you'll, there'll be a natural close and a natural end, um, but we will kind of volley back and forth tonight. And given that we are in the middle of a week, thought it would be appropriate to start off with some Torah, some text. And so we're going to um, begin with a Devar Torah for this week's Parsha, which is Kititsa. And there will be a natural segue into Mark from there. So the main topic in this week's Parsha is a story around the Israelites and their sin, in air quotes, of worshiping, in air quotes, the story of the golden calf. In brief, Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the tablets and learn the whole Torah by God. The Jews thought Moses would return in what they understood to be 40 days, but their approach to counting the days and Moses's were not the same. The Israelites counted what they understood to be 40 days and anticipated Moses descending from the mountain. And when Moses did not appear after what, again, they understood as 40 days, they became uncertain, had a hard time deep, being deeply thoughtful about what to do in the absence of Moses and his leadership, and they panicked. To respond to the panic, the Israelites started to reach for something concrete, something familiar, reassuring to fill the space that Moses left empty. Moses was a leader who expressed his power in concrete terms. This is a man who parted the Red Sea. And the way the Israelites tried to fill the space that Moses left behind was to come together to show a collective and community response to the issue. With some guidance from Aaron, they decided to contribute their precious gold earrings to a community fire from which the golden calf emerges. You see, the golden calf comes from a community response to fear and a collective effort to meet that fear and insecurity with a community bonding activity. The Jews felt fear and insecurity. They create a community bonding effort. And from that effort, the golden calf emerges and the Jews feel relieved. And from relief stems joy. Moses makes his way down the mountain and at the sight of what he reads as joyful expressions of worship of the golden calf, Moses and God, without any inquiry, assume idol worship is happening. And they respond with rage. Moses smashes the tablets thinking he could never give to the Jewish people the precious Torah as he believed they were committing the terrible sin of idolatry. 3,000 are killed as punishment for bad behavior. This parsha is discussed as a failure of the Jewish people, a terrible behavioral low point. The tone is judgmental, even hostile, and casts a shadow of the Jewish people as failures in this moment in history. But it seems to me that this moment isn't about the failure of the Jewish people. Because in advance of this moment in history, the Jewish people were in the process of developing a relationship with the marvelous and the miraculous. And up until now, we were trained by our leaders, God and Moses, to believe in the marvelous and the miraculous through concrete examples that could be seen with one's own eyes. The plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, manna being delivered from into the desert, real thunder and clouds with the revelation at Sinai. 
Recognizing miracles in the form of the actual was our training up until this moment in time. In Moses' absence, the Israelites, when they expected Moses to return, they were left with nothing more than faith to reassure them that Moses, their leader, whom they needed, would come back. And at this time, with only the experience of the miraculous and the marvelous as concrete, they lacked the skills, the tools, and the capacities to navigate Moses' absence in ways that reflected Moses and God's behavioral expectations, which certainly was not to create a golden calf. But the Jews were not prepared to successfully navigate a moment they had not yet known. They were not equipped to be successful. And so the Jews lack skills, tools, and capacities to navigate the moment. And I wonder why we keep talking about this moment as a failure of the Jewish people when it is, a fact, in fact, a failure of Jewish leadership. The story of the golden calf reveals a very deep internal struggle for the Jews. They were confronted with something challenging and scary and new, and they freaked out and they behaved badly. That response is primal, it's real, and it's part of our human condition. We needed some familiar way to understand the moment and believe it would be okay. And that note of the familiar was absent. And I don't agree with the emergence of the golden calf and the ensuing joyful relief that it is the Jews who are at fault as it was an expression of insecurity and fear. Even if their observed behavior was interpreted as entirely countercultural, inappropriate, and even offensive. It is the leaders who are charged with transcending the obvious, to see and understand what's going on at a deeper level, and then to support those whom they lead to reflect, to learn, and to grow, and to become who they are destined to be. And this is especially important as people try to successfully navigate moments of intense fear, unknown, and uncertainty, especially the kind that shakes you to your core. Leadership must be about serving those whom we lead, and to miss the cues, to be unconscious, to be unmindful about what is needed by those we lead, to have that which is important to our people not occur to our leaders as important is an expression of privilege. As we work to make the Jewish community more inclusive, to develop ourselves and to see ourselves racially and ethnically as we really are, we have to go deep about our relationship with identity, race, and privilege. And while our community is full of great, engaged, just people, as a community and as an ecosystem, we are still approaching talking about racial justice and privilege and Jewish identity as something that is new and about the other. And for many, going deep about privilege is uncertain and scary because examining privilege means giving up power. And it is up to Jewish communal leadership to respond to this moment of uncertainty, this moment of change, with compassion and strategy. We need to be pushed to look at why this is important, the opportunities, the tensions, and what's at stake. 20% of US Jewry is racially and ethnically diverse. And the perception by non-Jews of Jews in the US is that we are all white and wealthy. Perpetuating this idea, number one, creates an illusion of who US Jews are, bought into both by the Jewish community, and the secular community. Two, we keep talking about Jews of color and people of color as welcoming the stranger. But who is the stranger when you're me? 
working at the JCRC on the other side of the phone. Three, not dealing with privilege makes us less credible to non-Jews. How can we combat racial injustice when we can't even deal with the racism inside of our own community? And four, it reinforces anti-Semitism by allowing non-Jews to not only believe the misinformation about the diversity of the Jewish community, but to construct their anti-Semitic arguments using that misinformation. We have an obligation to make this stop, and it starts at the intersection of purposeful and compassionate leadership and getting honest about our story and the price of privilege. My consciousness began <coughs> here across the bay at Cal Berkeley on the famed Sprawl Plaza, where student groups put out their leaflets to attract students to whatever cause interested them. I, eager, activist, and politically engaged, made a beeline for the African Student Association, where I found my counterpart behind the table. I introduced myself and said, let's, you and I, start the Cal Berkeley Black Jewish Dialogue. He laughed and laughed and laughed. At a certain point in time, perhaps looking at the shocked facial expression I was giving him that had a little bit of a surprise by his reaction, he offered a little mercy on me with three words. I'm from Harlem. Now, I literally knew what that meant geographically, but I was also bright enough to understand that that was code for a lot more that at that moment I didn't understand and needed to begin to figure out. Growing up, my parents had four kids in five years. My dad began his career as an academic, but realized if he needed to support this family of six, he needed money, so he gave up his academic career, moved out to California, settled us in Pasadena, and uh, it lasted for exactly nine months. Because of anti-Semitic discrimination, he realized he would never move up in the group that he had joined, and we were off for the very, to the very white suburban community of Palos Verdes, California, where there were precisely two African-American families, one of them named White. The other one brought a kid in fourth grade, Jeff who uh, befriended my brother, Jeff. It was great. They had the same first name. And when Jeff's mom came to the house to pick him up after school, I didn't quite get, as a second grader, why she was so excited to see that on her son's first day of school in our community, he'd already made a friend. In third grade, mom took my brother and I to Inglewood's fabulous forum home of the World Championship Los Angeles Lakers, and on that Sunday afternoon, the Harlem Globetrotters. And what a great game that was. So exciting to me that when it was over, I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, when I grow up, I'm going to be a Harlem Globetrotter. And she delivered the bad news. <laughs> you can't be a Harlem Globetrotter. I said, why not? She said, because the Harlem Globetrotters are black, and you're not black, so you can't be a Harlem Globetrotter. I was devastated. It was 
my first awareness of racial consequence. But I would later learn, certainly not my experience of it. In graduate school, I pursued uh, Jews and social justice. I wrote on the black-Jewish relationship. And when it was time for me to finally get a job, I landed, believe it or not, in Pasadena, California, a generation later at a community college. I don't want to mention its name unless anyone knows Pasadena City College. And I'm about to say a lot of stuff about them. 90% of the student body were students of color. And there I met my office mate, Dr. Milton Brown, an African-American sociologist of ethnicity and race, a man of Malcolm's generation, who in fact had just finished as president of Malcolm X Community College in Chicago and had come out west for his apparent retirement to relax. In fact, I walked in one day and he's speaking to a young black male athlete, which was his scholarly and personal passion. And he was getting in this young man's face in a way I have never seen a professor speak to a student. He talked about his mother. He talked about his father. He talked about his personal life. And uh, when the kid walked out, I looked at Milton. I said, how on earth can you speak to a student like that? Because I asked the penetrating question to my undergraduates, and I have one of my former undergraduates here, what's your thesis? How do you prove it? And how is it historically significant? Milton, who just smiled and called me white boy, <laughs> explained to me that in his world, anything less than that is to be irresponsible as a professor and a mentor because he understood the sociological reality that faced the young man who was in his office. You see, with Milton, I learned racial consequence at a deeper level. We were enjoying a lunch together in old Pasadena, scurried across the street, Okay, I jaywalked across the street. He followed along, but he had to express his nervousness. He said, you broke the law, Mark. And I said, I jaywalked, Milton. And he said, you can explain that to the police. And I said, only the police in Westwood would ticket you for jaywalking. And he said, I'll leave that to you when the time comes. Because at PCC, I was the golden child. I enjoyed privilege, a PhD, a research-driven historian, a white, middle-class, straight man. When I wanted to introduce technology in the classroom, I filled out a form, and a $30,000 tech cart came right down the hall. When I wanted to teach in an all-expensive-paid semester in Florence, Italy, I became the first non-tenured faculty member ever to do that. The next year, I was the first non-tenured faculty member to direct the Florence Study Abroad program. And without even asking, and after just one semester, I was invited to teach in the honors program, which I learned after only a few months was code to teach the accidental PCC students from San Marino White High School, who um, were now going to be pulled out from the larger student population. So I said, no thanks, I'm actually not here to pretend that I'm not here. Then I lost my privilege. A group of seven white, non-Jewish, well-connected senior faculty members invited a Jewish terrorist to be their featured lecturer on the Holocaust. This individual had no training as an educator, no scholarly knowledge of the Shoah. He had been arrested for attempted murder. His organization's motto was stay alive with the 45 and every Jew a 22. The FBI had designated him a domestic terrorist. 
His mentor was forbidden from running for Israeli Knesset because of a special law that if he got elected, they thought there'd be World War III. My colleagues who invited him, goal for the lecture on the Holocaust was to turn the class into an episode of the Jerry Springer show, to titillate the students, in the words of one of my colleagues. The terrorist, as it turns out, had appeared on the Jerry Springer show. There were 100 undergrads in the class, almost none of whom were Jewish, almost none of whom knew anything about the Shoah. And as the only Jewish studies trained faculty member at the college, who was friends or at least friendly with the seven inviting faculty, I determined that I had to dissent in the most civil and respectful way. I asked for an in-person meeting. I simply printed the terrorist webpage and walked them through it. The questions I received in that meeting, well, did he actually kill someone? Well, I'm going to need to see his arrest record. Well, he comes here every year and no Arab students have objected. And at that point, I knew that I'd already lost the power game. Challenging the power elite in old Pasadena, it turns out, is not something one does. It is the old boys network, even though some of the old boys were in fact women. By secret vote, Dafka on Yom Kippur, they voted five to two to maintain the invitation. The resolution that they came up with was to invite Mark to debate the terrorist. I refused. This is not what a college is about, and I would not give platform to that. So Milton and I partnered. The right to dissent needs protection and needs to be exercised. So much for my privilege. The whisper campaign began in C building. I violated the speaker's right to free speech. I violated the faculty's right to academic freedom. A junior faculty member was telling a senior faculty member what to do. A liberal Jew just didn't like the politics of a conservative Jew. A Jewish professor was telling Christian professors they didn't know how to teach the Holocaust. I had exactly three allies. Milton, who partnered, taught, and met me through, uh, mentored me through it. Gretchen, my dean, the first woman dean in the old boys network of PCC. So outraged by this, she refused to sign the authorization form. So the college president went to the dean of English, who was Jewish, and had her sign it. And she did. And he told me, she's Jewish, and she signed it. She took my, uh, Gretchen took a public stand against the invitation, and when I sat down with her to explain to her that the heat's on, she said to me, quote, this is something worth losing your job over. Wow. When I pressed my concerns within the college's system, they gave my name up to the, to the Jewish terrorist. He taped his business card to my door. The college president called me an oddball to my face. Junior faculty were told that speaking to me meant no tenure. The student newspaper gave the terrorist op-ed space where he called for my firing and Gretchen's firing. When I challenged him on that, he told me he was actually the babysitter of the terrorist kids back in the day. That's informal power for you. Pasadena Weekly and LA Times picked up the story. I was named Pig of the Week on the terrorist website, along with the photo. I received an email photo of a Jewish terrorist in Cleveland holding an automatic weapon in front of a helicopter with the caption wondering if he needed to come to Pasadena to, quote, take care of business. My colleagues promised he would return every year. The logic professor uh, changed the final exam. The, the new question was, was Professor Dollinger a coward for refusing the invitation to participate in the Jerry Springer-like debate about the Holocaust? I demanded police protection. The police chief refused my call for an escort on campus. Six foot three inch, 280 pound guy. 
And when I challenged him and told him that he had an obligation to protect me, you know what he said to me? He said, Mark, did I ever tell you how much I love bacon challah with my bubby? And with that, he revealed to me that he was Jewish. And he said to me, we need more people like that terrorist. Students organized a protest. The university removed the approved protest flyers from campus. The leader of the student protest was physically, physically restrained by the college's provost. I demanded campus police in the classroom to protect students and enforcing this, who went to the lecture because we had a no firearms policy. The police chief did deploy the police in a broom closet, in the hallway, to arrest any of my students who came to protest. Milton and I organized the San Gabriel Valley's first ever town hall on diversity. 20 community groups, mostly communities of color as well as LGBT groups, 400 people showed up to tell their stories. In the lecture, it was a tense atmosphere. I thought I needed to leave campus before the lecture for my own safety. Turns out, the administration changed the time of the lecture to disrupt the protesters and did not inform me, so I actually ended up walking very close. Fortunately, I, I missed him. The focus of the lecture turned from the Shoah to Professor Dollinger, whom the speaker referred to as, quote, a self-hating leftist Jew and a coward for not agreeing to debate. The only one in that room to st stand up and challenge him was Gretchen, my dean, and she was booed by the students at the urging of their faculty. The consequence, I felt so unsafe, I got out of Dodge. Yeah. I went to Princeton University, where a white male Princeton University Press published research historian gets to go when he's in danger. By the fear that comes when we experience losing privilege. I'm struck by the fact that there has to be a sense of, of loss and a moment of cathesis to understand privilege. And I'm struck by the fact that it takes something so extreme for you to understand the divide and the racial consequence of it all. And I wonder to what extent this engaging in privilege helps us understand and develop our capacity to build relationships with people who are different than us, like Milton. Helps us build relationships with people in our community. And helps us build relationships with our people with a capital P. Reflecting on privilege is honest. And engaging in that space puts you in the same universe as other people who have to grapple with privilege. And you can't be in an authentic relationship with somebody who's different with you without seeing them and experiencing their sense of loss, and their sense of what privilege looks like from their side. Grappling with privilege creates a space for you to be reflective, and a space that's dynamic and full of action. And in that space, you build empathy for others. And in that space, you nurture your relationships with others, because you have to develop compassion. It develops your sense of care. It helps you see yourself in a larger context. And it helps you see yourself in relationship with people who are different than you, like Milton, in a way that's about building community and not competition. It makes space for multiple identities, for Jews who have different backgrounds, so that those who are women, men, genderqueer, black, Latino, Asian, 
Jewish can be that all at the same time. And it helps you hold the space for people to be whole, healthy, and so that people don't have to choose identities. And in the organized Jewish world, what that looks like is often choosing not to be engaged in the organized Jewish world because it doesn't reflect the diversity of the Jewish community. It helps us become more sensitive to others and their experiences, and it helps us learn to lead with common ground rather than things that are divisive and reinforce distance in identity communities. And for us in the domestic Jewish community, sometimes that means setting aside issues that are important to the global Jewish community for the sake of domestic relationships and quite possibility the survival of the Jewish people in the United States. It expands how we work and engage with justice, sometimes moving us outside of the organized Jewish world into the rest of the world where there are Jews. It helps us recognize that on a good day when our organized Jewish world has about 25% affiliation rate, depending on what data we're looking at, that there are lots and lots of Jews outside of here engaged in Jewish work with Jewish values and Jewish identity, but doing in spaces that are more inclusive. It helps us build relationships with people beyond the Jewish community, which again is you know, overlapped with the Jewish community, and it helps us live our values in a much more honest way. So in what ways does it deepen who we are and develop who we are as Jews? And what's uniquely Jewish about grappling with privilege? Last week I received a call at my office. I picked up the phone and a woman said on the other line, I am a grandmother of three kids who go to Berkeley Public Schools. And I said, do you live in the East Bay? And she said, no, I live out of state, but I've heard things about Berkeley High. And she went on to say, two of my grandchildren are in a particular program, and they called me and they are complaining that in this program, all they talk about is social justice, and they keep talking about the blacks. And she went on talking about the blacks and the blacks. And I'm like, who is this blacks family because they're getting so much attention in their classroom? <laughs> And I realized at what point, I, I wondered to myself, like at what point do I reveal that the blacks are on the other side of the phone? And I wondered if we should have like video phones just so that like we can reveal when we're, and the reality was is she so far could not fathom that the blacks are the Jews on the other side of the phone that she had a conversation with me entirely unhinged from the possibility that the Jewish world could look something like other than her. And when we are in environments where we know the Jewish world looks like her and beyond her, at what point do we build into our reality, our work, our strategies, our organizations, the reality of who the Jewish people are and plan from that place, rather than pretending like some historical narrative defines who we are today? What's uniquely Jewish about grappling with privilege is innovating upon who we are is not the same as reinventing who we are. And innovating upon who we are is a Jewish tradition. It is how the Jewish people have survived for 5,000 years. It's a uniquely Jewish approach to think about how we advance our community to survive in perpetuity. And we have instructions about how to do that that are found in the Talmud. In her Eli talk, Rabbi B'nai Lappi talks about our tradition of hitting moments when we are, we're hitting moments when who we are, who we have always been, 
is what she calls the master narrative. It crashes. And the Jewish future becomes unrecognizable. And I would suggest we are in a moment where our master narrative is crashing and the Jewish community is unrecognizable to who we thought we were. And Binet talks about there are three ways that we can possibly respond to the master narrative crashing. One, we can cling to the master narrative as if nothing is happening. All Jews are white. All Jews are some stereotype or some character of who we are. Let's proceed with this set of ideas in mind, even if we know it's not true. And that's often how we run our Jewish organizations and sort of how we manage our Jewish ecosystem. The second option B'nai talks about is we can discard the master narrative altogether. Just kind of throw out the Jewish history, throw out the Jewish narrative, and start from scratch. And that's not who we are. We build upon our years of history. We build upon our people. And the third option is to integrate the old with the new. And that is what we have always done. That is how we have survived. We have innovated upon who we have been to survive to be who we are always supposed to be. In our historic tradition, to innovate is to hold the diversity of our Jewish community. And it is a uniquely US phenomenon to hold as a Jewish community, one, that we are largely white and therefore have learned that this, we have learned all the same trappings of racism that every white person in the US learns simply by the air we breathe. There's no fault for that. Number two, we live in a multicultural context that in 20 plus years will be a majority of people of color. That is what the demographics tell us, is the United States in 20 years is going to look like me. And so how do we not prepare for what we know is coming if we want a dynamic, robust, engaged Jewish world? And three, unlike anywhere else in the Jewish world, non-Orthodox US Jewry is becoming browner and browner. As Rabbi Lappi talks about, we cannot cling to a master narrative that is biased and skewed in the first place. And we must integrate the old with the new. The Talmud provides us with some guidance. And as a community, we must be compassionate and purposeful, but provide leadership. At Princeton, I was the golden child once again. Everyone I told about the fellowship was so impressed. I gained instant recognition as smart and ambitious and successful. And this was a far cry from the treatment I received before. I went to the Princeton student store, and I bought every possible gift item I could find for me, including a shot glass, and I don't even drink. Every two weeks, another university press editor offered to publish whatever I wrote, no questions asked. It was a great year. And then Milton called. Come back. The fight isn't over. You can get another job. We can't. So I returned. And Gretchen was fired for supporting me. And Milton was arrested by campus police in his classroom in front of his students because a white woman falsely claimed he threatened her and it was the woman who had invited the terrorist. This was Milton's quote that got him arrested. What you put out in the world always comes back to you. I thought that was philosophical, if not inspiring and optimistic. Milton resigned his tenure 
and left as well. Maybe because he couldn't stand to be there anymore. Maybe because Gretchen, it turns out, was his wife. Or maybe because this anti-Semitic incident was also a sexist and a racist one too. Because black men and white women, apparently in Pasadena, shouldn't be married. Little did we know that during this whole trauma, oh, and drama, that was a Freudian slip, the terrorist was under surveillance from the FBI. They had recordings of him conspiring to blow up the offices of a mosque in Culver City, California, as well as the offices of an Arab American member of Congress. When he received shipments of detonators, police moved in. In his bedroom at the time of his arrest, they found 12 firearms. They confiscated gunpowder, pipes, and end caps. And that very night, the PCC school board met for its regular session. And let's just say, I offered a speech to them that was not regular, with support from a black colleague, a brown student, a white colleague, and my big brother, Jeff. I stood power in its face and called them out for what they'd done. On the morning of his first day of trial, he ran from the guards, leapt over a second floor railing, and fell to his death. As a Jew, I'm not supposed to celebrate anyone's death. It was hard not to. I know what it is to enjoy privilege. I've tasted the bitter pain of its loss, and I've gained it back again, which is a privilege as well. It was now time to really get out of Dodge. And SF State has an endowed chair in Jewish studies and social responsibility. I interview with the then president, Dr. Robert Corrigan, who brings me to the window of his fifth floor admin building, looking down upon Malcolm X Plaza, where all the political activism occurs on campus, and says to me, this is a highly politicized place. Do you think you can handle it? I said, sit down, Dr. Corrigan, I have a story to tell you. That summer, moving from LA to San Francisco, I underwent what I call the San Francisco State University identity morph. I went from a marginal leftist Jew to a Zionist imperialist in just three months. Department of Jewish Studies is caught between power and privilege and its Jewishness. We are ethnic studies because Jews are an ethnic group and a minority. But we are not in the College of Ethnic Studies because we enjoy the privilege of whiteness. In the 1960s, sociologists described institutional racism. Unlike Jim Crow segregation, this covert form of racism isn't described in law. It simply exists. It's woven into the very fabric of our society without any white person ever having to be a racist, at least as we define the word during the civil rights years. We participate in creating and perpetuating a culture that is at its core racist. And because it's institutional, white folk generally don't see it. Because even white Jews from time to time experience anti-Semitism and discrimination as I did, we're even less able to see it, to call it out, to acknowledge our own complicity in the racist system. I understand the pain of many in the African-American community 
who were friendlier to white Christians than to white Jews, because at least white Christians acknowledge their whiteness. Even as we have our moments of marginality, we remain white and privileged. We are the golden children of our American experience. It is so hard to open up our consciousness about the dynamics of white privilege, and even harder then to achieve change. Those who profess to favor freedom, yet depreciate agitation, are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its waters. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Frederick Douglass, 1857. to become inclusive, we will have a big, full, diverse tent. And we're always talking about the big Jewish tent. And who's in there might be confusing. Who are all these people? They don't look like me. I don't know them. We didn't go to Jewish summer camp together. We're not on Hadassah together. We didn't go to B'nai B'rith together. But the alternative, and we are seeing this in our organized Jewish world, is to have a big tent with very few people in there. And what I can assure you is those who were in there will know each other. And they probably went to camp together. And that's lovely. But they probably won't make a minion. Engaging in this work allows you to engage in the fact that Judaism transcends race and ethnicity. And there are opportunities to connect with the outside world in ways that are meaningful and parallel because we all believe in justice. Engaging helps us develop our individual spirits and capacities to grow. We become reflective and kind and more aware of our impact on others and how much space we take up in the world as Jews. It expands who we see and understand as the Jewish people. And I once listened to a survivor talk about his understanding of Jews by choice. Sometimes they're also Jews of color. And he was very, very simple about this. He said, we lost six million Jewish souls in the Holocaust. I welcome each one who wants to come back. And we make Jewish life and Jewish leadership and Jewish organizations more authentically appealing and engaging for diverse Jewish people. This December, I spent a week in Birmingham, England, teaching at Limud UK about issues of Jewish diversity. And every day I taught classes, and I taught about the organized Jewish world in the United States, and I referenced my work at the JCRC. I used to work at the Federation. And at the end of my four days of teaching, a young white woman walks up to me, and she introduces herself. She's in England, and she says, I used to live, I grew up in Washington, DC finished graduate school, and I was excited about working in the Jewish world. And so I went on the websites of the Federation and the JCRC, and all I saw were white people. And that doesn't reflect the Jewish community I know as a 20-something. And then I experienced the websites as racist and exclusive, and it turned me off to Jewish leadership. And then she said, <laughs> 
But then I look at you, and you represent the organized Jewish community in the United States. And I kind of fell out laughing that she thought I represented the organized Jewish community in the United States. I'm like, if I give that impression, um, and you think the organized Jewish world in the United States looks like me, then well done. <laughs> but then she went on to say, and you're so enthusiastic about your work and the work you do in the organized Jewish world, you almost make me think I want to come back and engage in Jewish leadership. And I would like every young adult to almost think they want to come back and engage in Jewish leadership. And then a closing thought about the cost of privilege. Privilege obfuscates things. It's confusing. And it's heady and it's intoxicating. And it, like when you get all caught up in it, it feels a little bit like you've been drinking absinthe. And in, that talk, in the, and in that intoxication, we can forget our place and we can lose our way. In the mid-1960s, James Baldwin and other influential African-Americans reminded Jews to not get too comfortable in the role as allies to and with African-Americans. The worry was that Jews would lose their history and memory of being the other because they were so caught up in helping somebody else and that feeling of being made to feel special. Baldwin thought that we would forget our place and in a hierarchical structure where societies are built on stratifying, you have to know your place. And Baldwin thought that we would forget the vulnerabilities and the risks and the exposures and that we were only here to repair and mend the world for others. And that we would forget about our specific experiences, we would forget about ourselves as marginalized people, and Baldwin worried that Jews would think our own history culminated in the Holocaust, it would define us forever, and therefore forever make us incapable of being oppressors. And he warned us. The cost of not owning and working on our privilege for the last 50 years is that the power of this tiny domestic Jewish community has become mighty and disproportionate and we haven't needed or nurtured relationships with other identity groups. And it seems for so long that it was acceptable to the Jewish community to be alone and then to enjoy our ascendance, which has been a very important thing for us to build and sustain and maintain the Jewish community. Things were great for us. We were thriving by all standards and all measurements, but then things changed but maybe not enough for us, and maybe not enough for us yet. There was the burning of black churches two years ago, and we did not react. There were the burning of mosques in the last 18 months, and as an organized Jewish community, we have not responded. There has been an ongoing systematic assault on black and brown people by biased law enforcement, and we have not responded. First they came for the socialists, and we did not speak out. Because even though we are community leaders, what was said did not occur to us as important and as essential. And what we've seen in the last two and three years has not occurred to us as essential and important. And not feeling the urgency as experienced by other communities, and not feeling the urgency through the voices and the perspectives of Jews of color, 
because we are your canaries in the coal mine. First, they come for African Americans. First, they come for the LGBTQ community. And then they come for the Jews. So your Jews of color know, because we are living it before the rest of you are. And so to not feel the urgency when we are trying to raise up this voice is missing the sense of possible personal and community peril and is an expression of privilege. Questions? Hands. And if you would hear, and then we'll go here, and if you would just speak loudly. Not much. Yeah, uh, what changed in Pasadena between the time my dad moved there and my mom and the time that I moved there, and I sort of jokingly said not much, but, but just let me play on a lot of the themes Ilana was expressing. A whole lot changed because nine out of every 10 students of Pasadena City College are students of color, and the other 10% are from South Pasadena or San Marino, and they're by accident. Um, and then they get picked out for the honors program. So it's actually a perpetuation, active perpetuation, um, of uh, segregation, um, e even as the place is diverse. Um, my upset was with the college and it's with my colleagues and the administration. I love my students and my former students who taught me, and, and I am still deeply close. And I didn't put their names in, but they actually were the ones who were my police escort, right? They, they, they literally walked me around. And that, for the rest of my career, I, I get to carry that, that gift. So. Um, in the vest and then back there. Yeah. I don't have my source page with me on the on the podium, but I'm happy to give us give the source. And okay, sure. I'll give you a card, and I'm happy to do that. Back there.
Thank you. More questions or comments? Um, in the I mean, a couple of things. One is that, you know, the organized Jewish community has a number of leadership pathways that are fortified and built in, and the organized Jewish community spends a lot of time attracting young leaders to join leadership opportunities, and I think expanding, using the pathways that are already in existence, but expanding the ways we invite people into those pathways, that we cultivate leadership, that we nurture them while they're in those pathways is one practical, very easy, accessible step. I think um, it's fascinating. Um, in the independent school world, there are 1,500 independent schools in the United States, and there are principles of best practice, one of which is around equity and inclusion. And I think it's fascinating as an organized Jewish community that we don't have any standards. Um, we have Torah. Um, but outside of Torah, there are actually no professional standards for what's acceptable in organized Jewish community spaces around inclusivity. We started to do some of that work around Keshet and the LGBTQ community. We started to do some of that work around people with disabilities but we haven't built in those same expectations, standards, and structures for Jews of color. And so again, taking the structures that are already in existence, there's no need to rebuild or repeat any of this, but then applying them to another group would be a very practical, accessible step. I can jump in. <laughs> okay, that, and I, I want to get from the perspective of, of, an, of a white ally. Um, mm. What can we do? Uh, humility. It, it all starts there. Um, that, that that opens up possibilities. Um, without humility, we are convinced that our constructed narrative, our worldview, is the one. And um, only with a lot of deep breaths and slowing down and, and listening and understanding that there are completely different constructs for how everything works. Mm which are not only different from ours, but violate the very principles of what we believe in, is really, really hard. Um, so so if, if we started in a, in a place of humility, because that, that was a profound lesson I learned in Pasadena. I got really humble and scared, but humble. And I want to add one thing, and I know we're short on time. The other thing is that, um, and I'll just speak from a personal experience, um, there are two people in this room who have helped nurture me and groom me as a leader in the organized Jewish world. And sometimes we need people who are on the inside and have access to opportunities to engage leaders and leadership opportunities. The same way we would like find a great junior tech engineer or a great junior team leader in any other professional field, we have to tap young leaders and groom them and to use our power in positions when we're on boards and we're on positions of influence on the in the organized Jewish world. We need to use some of that power when there's alignment to help bring in new voices and new perspectives. And that takes actual people seeing actual people, putting actual hands on them, just doing one thing. And so nurturing, mentoring, and help elevating is important with that power and that access. One last question. Okay. Graduated from PCC, and then UCLA. 
I knew, I knew because Jackie Robinson is the most famous graduate of PCC. Then he went to UCLA. Then he went to the Dodgers, right? And the way in which institutional racism operates, that gets put out there huge. And then the question is, what does it mean, really? And it turns out not as much as I would have liked. <laughs> can, I, can I talk about Jack's work? Talk about the, Jack's work at Berkeley? He's, like, he's writing on this, right? Jack Laser, isn't he working on this? Yeah. So a friend of ours is actually the leading scholar on this question at Berkeley. He's come up with all the data, and he's going around on, on tour now. Um, he's been all over the radio, so I can certainly get you that contact information to, be, to begin with, because he's you know, on the professorial side. 